Okay, we are. Make sure I got my settings here. Okay, good. We're good to go. Hebrews chapter 4, there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. Fantastic chapter on Sabbath. This is, this is about Sabbath and how it's understood in the New Covenant. It's, and we'll talk about that here. But we were. It's 040404. 040404. So let's, does that have some spiritual. <laughs> what happens then? <laughs> <laughs> the planets are in alignment. <laughs> okay, Hebrews 4 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Wow. Did they ever have another debate on Sabbath? I'm going to ask if I can do it. Uh, the last time I was too busy doing something else. But they had the, the Seventh day Adventists ignored this verse altogether. But this shows that Sabbath rest is entered by faith, not by. Sabbath keeping. For we have believed to have entered that rest, just as he said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. We talked about the verse last week, but we didn't do the cross references. The the foundation of the world here means creation. Mentioned that last week. It's uh, a phrase that's used several times, many times in the Bible, and it, it has to do with God's act of creation. Okay, let's go to the cross-references that we didn't get to last week. Isaiah 28.12. Lois, could you look that one up? Isaiah 28.12. And then uh, Brian, Jeremiah 6.16. And uh, Pat, Matthew 11.28 and 29. And Sam, Ephesians 1.4. I think Ephesians 1.4 is about the foundation of the world. <laughs> okay, uh, Isaiah 28, 12. To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So God offered them rest, but they didn't want to listen to him. That's going to be the theme here in the next five or six verses. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the eternal paths, where the good old way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Oh, boy. So again, I think God keeps offering them rest, and they said, No, we don't, we're not interested. That's, uh, that's the theme here in Hebrews, is that this, the, the people that were given the opportunity for rest turned it down, but people that come to faith actually enter rest. So Matthew 11, 28, 29, very famous verses. That makes it very explicit. How do you find rest? Through meticulous Sabbath keeping? No, they did that. And they were accusing him of being a Sabbath breaker in in Matthew 12. And Jesus, the implication in the context of Matthew 11, 28, 29 was that Sabbath keeping the way the Pharisees did it wasn't giving people rest. It was a yoke of bondage. When they had that... 
Yep. Yep. So what you're saying is, is that uh, you would have just stepped in there and just given them this. I would have, I would have defended the concept that in the New Covenant, Sabbath keeping is to come to faith in Messiah. And that everybody that doesn't come to faith is a Sabbath breaker. And if you do come to faith in Messiah, God gives you liberty about what day you gather to worship. Well, I could, I would, uh, I'll tell you what, I'd, I wish I could have done it. I went to that first debate, and I was just frustrated because I didn't think the guy was dealing with his pastor, Hank. And, and then I went, the second one, I was doing something else, but everybody that went said the same thing, that the, the guy debating him didn't do a very good job. I wanna, well, I'm going to debate Pastor Hank on Jan's show. Because he says, yeah, because he says the church is Israel. He's, he's annoying. That's the May 5th, I think it is. What? Oh, he's this guy that uh, is, is sort of a non-denominational Seventh-day Adventist that takes out full-page ads in the... He used to take out full-page ads in the Minnesota Christian Chronicle challenging anybody to debate him. He says, you've if you don't keep Sabbath, then you're a Sabbath. If you don't worship on Saturdays the way they do, you're a Sabbath breaker and you're sinning against God. He's but there's, there's other churches in the, uh, that, that keep Saturday as the uh, Sabbath. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and I would, uh, my position is they're free to do that as long as they don't command it. Right. They're free to keep uh, Sabbath, uh, just uh, just take it as circumcision. Uh, that was the old covenant requirement, right? Well, the new covenant, people are free to circumcise their children, but if you command it as the law of God, then you're a Galatian, you're, you're a Judaizer, and the book of Galatians says that you've departed from the faith. So I'd say if somebody chooses to circumcise their male children, they're free to do so, but if they preach it as a doctrine, it's condemned. The same way with keeping uh, or worshiping on Saturday. If you come to faith in Messiah and choose to gather on Saturdays to worship, you're free to do so. But if you command everybody else to do it under threat of being sinners if they don't, then that's a sin. That's how I would understand it. So I'd say to Pastor Hank, you can worship on Saturday, but if you command me to do it, you're sinning. Amen. I'd love to do that. Well, I hope we can. <laughs> well, I love him, but he's still sinning. You were supposed to love sinners. <laughs> but he, this, he, he delights to tell everybody else they're sinning. But when you throw it back on him, he didn't like it so well. Uh, Ephesians 1 4. So, before the foundation of the world, that phrase there means God's act of creation. So that he, God's purpose included saving a people for himself, and then he had that purpose from all eternity. It's Paul's doctrine in Ephesians. Okay, let's go to Hebrews 4.4. 4. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. This is, a, this is from... Genesis 2.2. I had, let's see here. Norma, if you could look up 
Exodus 31.17. I'm, I'm going to find my cross-reference that I want to write a quotation here. Okay. It says here, in the synagogue liturgy for the beginning of the Sabbath, the recital of Psalm 95, 1-11 was followed by Genesis 2, 1-3. The association and order of the two texts in the Friday evening service of prayer, which in the diaspora would presumably be conducted in Greek, may have suggested the hermeneutical step taken in verse 4. That's the one we're looking at. The writer interprets the personalized expression, then he gives the Greek word my, for my rest, in Psalm 95.11 from the vantage point of Genesis 2.2, which contained the cognate verb, in the, again in the Greek, God took rest. So Psalm, Psalm 95.11 and the Septuagint of Genesis 2.2 have the noun and verb form of the same word rest. The analogous use of terminology permitted inference that the primordial rest of God reported in Genesis 2.2 is the archetype of all later experiences of rest and thus typifies the rest intended for the people of God. So that was William Lane's comment on the Jewish background to the what we find in this verse here, that they actually talk about that at synagogue on Friday nights, that we're entering into Sabbath rest because... God rested, and they're using the same word. Now the author of Hebrews is going to contend. Now this one has shocked his Jewish readers that if they don't, if they don't come to faith in Messiah or continue in their faith in Messiah, they're going to be the worst Sabbath breakers you can imagine. They're going, they're going to be just like those guys in the, that died out there at Kadesh Barnea, who, who they wouldn't enter into the Promised Land. So the author of Hebrews is taking their own traditions. Then proving from Psalm 95 that if they don't worship Messiah in faith, they're Sabbath breakers. Amen. And that makes people mad at their choice. The Pharisees really were mad when Jesus said the same thing to them, that they're Sabbath breakers and they don't come to him. Okay? Yeah. Well, actually, I feel sorry for this uh, six, seven day events because I am uh, seven Sabbath days every week. He's only got one. He's only got one. Because they come unto me, all you need rest. If, if this day is unto the Lord, it's unto the Lord. If it isn't unto the Lord, even you as believers, it isn't unto the Lord. Every day, start your day, it's unto the Lord. It's a Sabbath, yeah. Sabbath day. Every day, right. this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice. And I feel sorry for not only do they have one Sabbath day, it's a day of, of hell for them because they're lost. Well, they don't trust Messiah there. Messiah, they're yeah. lost. Christian is he a trust in man. Exodus thirty one seventeen Norma. It is a sign for me and the children of Israel forever. Amen. But see, this fellow says the church is Israel. So the church has to keep this Sabbath. Yeah, well, actually, we talked about this last week. Remember the the passage in John where Jesus said, "My Father rests, and my Father works until now, and I work." And Jesus claimed a divine prerogative to work on Sabbath because He's God. 
All right, and so the Jews believe that God continued to work because he holds the universe together seven days a week. And so that was his divine prerogative. But yet they also referenced that he rested on the seventh day. So he rested from the act of creation. The acts of creation were completed in the six days. And he rested from creation. But he continues to providentially oversee his creation all the time. I think that's how they understood it, and I think it's right. Okay? He doesn't rest because he's tired. God doesn't run out of energy, though. <laughs> uh, right. You know, things you look at, circumcision and Sabbath, and one thing that I noticed, especially with this pastor name, that really has kind of become infamous in our little community here because of how he is you know, calling it from the audience. You look at it, what people like him, like a genuinely point people towards, who isn't Christ, but back to these quote unquote elemental worthless things Amen. that um, are basically a sign of what was to come. So you look at circumcision, you look at the Sabbath. These things were something that the Lord instituted that pointed forward to the Messiah. But now that the Messiah has come, we have the stuff like um, Paul says in Colossians, we have the substance now. Well, 
they had two versions of that. One was, well, the body, in order to be more spiritual, you severely treat the body. Warned about in Colossians 2. Yeah, so trying to get rid of your body by strictly following some regimen to minimize it in order to be more spiritual. Or the other way of doing it was saying, well, the body doesn't count, so everything I do doesn't really matter. It's just the body. And so that was your, so that's how you got antinomianism and asceticism coexisting. And you can see which one would be more popular. Well, not necessarily, though. It's, it's kind of odd how people gravitate to You know, these people go to a monastery and whip each other to try to be spiritual. That's a cynicism. You know? Actually, what we believe is that while the kingdom is spiritual and not yet, it has come with us. Right? It's only come spiritually and not yet. If it's true spiritual, then it will work its way out due to, due to the flesh. And we can't help but having a truth that appears in the flesh, even though it's not of the flesh. Right. God changes the lives of the people who truly are regenerate. Yes. Then God told the Jews, He dealt with both those philosophies. He said, John the Baptist went without wore animal skins, and he was ascetic, and you complained. I came to celebrate, and you complained. So nothing satisfies you. Yeah, yeah, Matthew 10. They, they were looking... They just didn't want to listen to God. So, but whatever sort of a messenger God sent, they didn't like it. So if God celebrates, they don't like it. If God's uh, disciple goes without, they don't like it. But they want to celebrate sin, and they want to be ascetic in sin. It's really strange. Well, actually, well, what Jesus said was, it was like children playing in the street that's piped the tool. and said, well, we piped the tool. Well, they were playing... Um, these were literal children's games that, okay, that, that they did. And the way that the two big events that they would witness would be a funeral or a wedding. Okay? So the kids, to entertain themselves, played funeral or played wedding. Right? And so they're going to play, the kids are gathering and saying, hey, we're going to play wedding, so we get the wedding music and we're going to pretend we got a bride and groom and we're going to have our parade down the street like they'd witness. And what Jesus used that analogy, he said they, they, they're, like kids. Well, we played wedding. You didn't join in. You know, they're not going to be happy no matter what you do. So that's Matthew 10. Okay, back to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 and verse 5. Okay? And again, in this passage, quote, They shall not enter by rest. That is Psalm 95.11b. We have already talked about that. It's been reiterated several times in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And the rest there... In the Old Testament, was entering into the Promised Land, and they didn't enter into the Promised Land because they decided it wasn't worth the danger and problem to trust God's promises. So they decided to not go in. Amen. And so God said, "All right, you're not going to enter my rest. You're going to sit here and die in the wilderness." Amen. Now, what's the point? Verse six says, "Therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached them failed to enter because of disobedience." So the logic is, all right, that wasn't the ultimate promised rest. They didn't enter it. So there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And there's still a promise because Psalm 95 comes after Numbers 14. And Psalm 95 is still talking about a rest. So they didn't enter because of disobedience. So it remains for some to enter. There will be some who will enter rest. 
Now, what was it, what does it mean to enter rest? He was the Lord. Come to faith in the sight. Yes. I was just thinking Moses couldn't enter the promised land, but remember that was the, that was the earthly yeah. promised land. But he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord. Oh yeah, that is, that's a good point. Uh, it doesn't the fact that that whole generation died in the wilderness doesn't mean that none of them ever came to faith. I mean, the whole nation was judged and said, all right, you're not going in. But Moses didn't go in, but he was obviously saved. He was saved. And so, yes, a good distinction. I agree with you. Okay. Uh, who's next here? Noah. Acts 13, 46 and 47. Could you look that up? 13, 46 and 47. Yeah, and I have a quote here from William Lane. God's promise nevertheless remains valid and directs attention to another group who will enter his rest. That group is contemplated in Psalm 95, 7 and 8 and consists of all those who heed the warning uttered by the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 3 and verse 7, and who responds to God's voice with faith and obedience. So the people that hear and listen and come to God in faith enter rest. Amen. <laughs> Good. Good rest. Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Acts 13, 46 and 47. No. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, and hold return to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have sent you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the uttermost, part, uttermost parts of the earth. Right. That's a quotation from Isaiah, I think, that Messiah would go and bring salvation to the Jew first, but then also to the Gentiles, so that uh, the nations would come to faith. So the pattern through Acts was they went to the Jew first, right? First thing Paul would do is he'd go into town, there's a synagogue, and he'd go into the synagogue, He'd open up the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And he would give evidence from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And some would believe. Okay? But the majority, most of the time, did not. And sometimes, they, like at Thessalonica, they just got hostile, chased them out of town. And then when Paul went to the Berea next, and they were willing to search the Scriptures, and what it meant there to search the Scriptures to see if these things be true, where we get our term Berean, was that they'd look, they were willing to open the scriptures with Paul and see if there's evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. Because that's what was under consideration. Does the Old Testament, that they consider the Tanakh, the scriptures, teach this? And they were willing to do it, so it made them more noble-minded, it says, because they at least looked for evidence. Well, then the rebellious ones from Thessalonica that chased them out of that town came to Berea to stop people from coming to faith there. That's how hostile they were to the gospel. Amen. So Paul was just being chased from town to town and persecuted and stoned and <laughs> left for dead and shipwrecked. So he had quite a tough time. Imagine what he looked like by the time he got older. Beaten so many times. Then he said in Second Corinthians, they say of me, his personal appearance is unimpressive. So I guess there's hope for all of us. <laughs> 
What's that? No, that's very telling. This Latter-day Apostle movement, if you look at their heroes, they do everything they can to be like Hollywood. And it's it's just a total different thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's not a good thing. Okay, let's go to verse uh, 7, Hebrews 4 and verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today. How many times has the author of Hebrews mentioned that? Over and over, it's thematic today. Let, let's talk about it again. Let's see. Do you remember, we talked about it before. What does he mean by today in Hebrews 3 and 4? Right? Well, the right now is right now in what qualitative sense? The right now is the messianic age. So today would be from the from basically from the day of Pentecost until God's wrath is poured out at the end of the age. And uh, during this whole time, uh, the age of messianic salvation is today. Now, for an individual, it's when we hear His voice, meaning the gospel. So that we are alive during the Messianic age, and somebody shares the gospel with us, what ought we to do? Repent and believe the gospel, because there's going to be a too late. Either we're going to die in a belief like they did, or the time's going to run out. Yeah, <laughs> there'll become a time when it's not today. But so today is if you're alive. During the period between Pentecost and the day of God's wrath, that you read about in Revelation, and you hear the gospel, Amen. believe. Amen. That's your article, this generation. Yeah, this generation uh, is a continual disbelief and rebellion throughout the age, yes.
Sometimes we got to have him write that up. He, he did a study on this and traced it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And Amishta is when there's this feast that everybody's invited to. And it's, it's or it could be a smaller scale one, but at this feast, always there, there's judgment and salvation that happen simultaneously. Yeah, when there's a Mishnah. And what happens is, Esther is 42 times the word appears, 40 times appears in the Old Testament. 20 of those are in Esther. So the systematic in the, in the whole book. Every time it happens, they had a feast. Um, it starts off with a feast, the Mishnah that, that our Xerxes has. And Vashti is disposed, deposed. And Esther is raised up as a queen. You have another Mishnah where it uh, kind of culminates in Haman's Mishnah where the king, you know, Esther invites the king and Haman to a feast. They come to the feast and Haman's come. And Esther's people are saved. Mordecai's raised up. And then it culminates in a feast at the very end where there's a feast where all of the enemies of Israel are dead, are killed, and slaughtered. And Israel is raised up as a rule. And it's the same feast. It's one feast. If you get invited to the feast, it might not be a good thing for the wedding feast. If you get the wedding feast in Matthew, Matthew 23, yeah. and if they invite everybody in, come to the feast, come to the feast, and then one guy comes, and he looks down, he doesn't have his wedding clothes on, and the king says, friend, the same word is used when Jesus said friend to, to, to uh, Judas. To Judas. You know, Captain Spice is his friend. If you don't want to be that kind of a friend, you can't follow the feast. It's a, wasn't that the thing for Jesus? It's not a, yeah, and it's a, we, we, sometimes we've got to get that written into an essay because it's a fabulous study. The same thing happened at the Last Supper. Yeah, Judas was at the Last Supper. They had a feast, and Judas is cast out. He, he leaves. And so. And the last what the last piece is the scariest one. That's in, that, in Revelation seventeen where the kings they're actually feasted upon. The last piece is when the birds are feasting on the corpses of the kings who've been judged. And the people of God are saved. Watching. Yeah, the people of God are watching this feast. And so uh, very, very interesting study. Now what were we talking about? I want to be oh you started this, Carolyn. <laughs> okay, back to your question though. The question is there is a description, I don't know where it is right now, where it comes a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Yeah. Okay. They have itching ears. Is that beyond No, that's true. That's where it got this. In some ways, the whole Messianic age is this big feast. Okay. And some are entering in to Sabbath rest, which is a celebration, and others are being hardened and through the deceitfulness of sin. Yes. See, to me, okay, the Israelites are in the wilderness, right? They all died in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But did all of those people have unbelief except three? Do you well, know what I mean? All right. Or, that that came all, up with what he said. I was, did they all die because of the sins of many? Or okay, let's, let's uh, look at that. I think there's, there's two things going on simultaneously, though. The corporate and the individual. Corporately, the people rejected God's promise. And it wouldn't go in. Other than Caleb and Joshua. And they went in. But as uh, 
Dan pointed out, Moses didn't go in, but he was saved because he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, and so you, out of that whole multitude of people that were over 40 years dying, after the whole group was not allowed to go in and they're going to die, it doesn't mean that nobody ever actually had their own personal faith in God and was saved. They could have been saved in the wilderness if they put their faith in God and trust Him, even though they still died in the wilderness because corporately they weren't allowed to go in. So, when that time comes, you know, like talk about That's the judgment. The judgment of reprobation is when God withdraws his hand of restraint and lets somebody have what they want. And that's, and yeah, and ultimately I think that's what the Great Tribulation is. Is that God removes his restraint and lets the world won't have what they've been wanting all along, which is their babble. So is that beyond today? No, that today, today ends when God's wrath starts being poured out. That's actually the, the same theme in this peace thing, is that concept, because the Mishnah happens in Daniel, and Daniel and his friends are being fed at the feast of the king. It's the appetites that you have at the feast that determine whether they were good or bad, because they could have eaten all these things at the feast, and they only chose to eat this, even, they didn't have the appetite for the things they weren't going to eat. They didn't have an appetite for the pagan ways. That's what it was at yeah. the feast. If you would have come to the feast and eaten that, it would have been bad. Yeah. So, this whole time now, we have this two things going on. We have your Judas's, or, or like in the Acts, the passage that Dole read. The Messianic banquet is, the, is an invitation right now. Come to the Messianic banquet. Communion is a Messianic Messianic banquet. Another example, right? At communion, he who eats and drinks unworthily is judged. So that's another mishnah. But you either are blessed in it or judged. It's okay, Pete, you've been patient. Thank you. Jesus said things like this generation will pass away and all through the New Testament was those points about he could come in time. Right. sense of urgency that continues and it should be at the forefront at any age that we might live in. There's urgency and, and imminence and the possibility of uh, judgment. And so the feast is a, it's sort of like a watershed or something. You're going to end up on one side or the other. And so this whole age of Messianic salvation is a big feast where people are universally invited, uh, come, all to, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, we read the verse, and I will give you rest. And so those who come on God's terms are brought into rest and experience messianic blessings, a great feast. And we, we, we have the Lord's Supper, we're remembering His death until He comes, and we're looking forward to the real feast the Mary Supper of the Lamb, where everybody's blessed. It's there, okay? Everybody and everybody comes. And everybody comes. Well, the Mary Supper of the Lamb, the, peop- the people that are going to be there are being gathered out as we go along. Um, 
But on the other hand, with great blessing comes great responsibility and great judgment. And just like what happened in Israel was God chose Israel as his own special people, which they still are, and offered them the greatest privilege to go into this promised land. And he says, in there, I will give you a central place of worship. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'm going to give you the bounty of the land. I'm going to drive out nations before you. And you're going to be my special, unique people in Israel. And when they, But refusing that brought great judgment. So the greater the blessing and opportunity, the greater the judgment for rejecting it. Does that make sense? And so living in the age of messianic salvation is of utmost importance to recognize how how necessary it is to listen. Let's get back to verse 7, which is what we're talking about. Today. Today is the day of opportunity. So today, David was saying after such a long time, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Amen. I think it's pretty simple. But it's urgent. It says here, I was going to quote William Lane, it is Psalm 95 that calls for an eschatological understanding of katapausis, rest. The admonition in Psalm 95 is both an urgent call to the people of God and an announcement of the eschatological time of salvation. That time has come. It is the final period of redemptive history which has begun with the speaking of God through his Son. It is the present time of salvation for the Christian community for whom the issue of entrance into God's rest remains alive. So he's basically saying what we're talking about. We are living in the last days, the end times, and during this whole period, the last days, that began with Peter's announcement of the last days of Joel, it will go on until the culmination, which was the... Re- Joel had two parts to it, didn't it? The day of the Lord. Who can endure... You know, the day of the Lord is that final day of wrath. But there's also the gathering together of the redeemed before that. So, pretty good. Makes sense? Yeah. I was thinking of uh, the rich man. God says, today... Thy soul shall be required of thee. And that's for everybody on the street. Today, thy soul might be required of thee. And us could be like Lazarus. Our souls require to go to heaven. But today, that's why the gospel is hard not your heart. It's so critical. Today, yeah. they will, their souls, millions of souls are going to be required today. And they're going to enter hell. No rest. That was uh, Luke 12. Luke 12. And I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Hell. No. God says all the day long I hold out my hands in the sense of a continual invitation. Okay, here's some passages. I know everybody lost an hour of sleep, so thank you for hanging in here. You, you don't worry, though. You get it back in October. <laughs> so you're only going to be tired for six months, and then you'll be fine again. <laughs> you're going to get that extra hour, and you'll be awake all the time. <laughs> okay, skip Second Samuel 23, 1 and 2. And Carolyn, Psalm 95, 7 and 8. And Denny, Mark 12, 36. Mark 12, 36. 1 and 2. These are the last words of David.
Yeah, uh, that was, the idea of that was that David spoke by the Holy Spirit, and that was his last words, that he was a sweet psalmist. <laughs> he spoke by the Holy Spirit, that it was the Word of God that he spoke. So, uh, he, I think the point of that cross-reference Hebrews 4, 7, he fixes a day saying through David. So God is saying it, but he's, he's using a mouthpiece, which is David, who wrote the psalm. So that's evidence for the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. You see that back in chapter 1, he was all... Yeah. God spoke. God spoke. God spoke. Has a, the book of Hebrews has a very clear doctrine of inspiration. Yes. Matthew is a conflation of two verses, one from Isaiah 
and one from Psalms, no, Zechariah, and part of Isaiah is taken out, part of Zechariah is taken out, and the two are put together, and then what it says is only part of what it said in the Old Testament. And you see Jesus doing the same thing in Luke, and I think this is what we're seeing here in Joel. In, in Luke 4.18, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he only takes a part of it. He says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. What? Um, the brokenhearted are healed, the favorable day of the, of the Lord, salvation comes. But then there's also the day of the vengeance of our God in Isaiah that Jesus leaves out. All right? So he, so within the Old Testament passage is the whole scope of history from the saving part to the judging part later. The New Testament just pulls out part. I think that's what, is that what, um, Peter's doing? In a sense, he's pulling out the saving part and leaving the vengeance? He's even he's saying that this is going to come. I was just thinking that it has to do with the same thing already in the universal call of the Spirit yeah, in all flesh and, and that some will be saved and die and those who come. Yeah, it is. I agree. It's a universal call and it's already done. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Saul was anointed king and the Holy Spirit come upon him temporarily, but yet he was no man of God. That's true. That's that's interesting, isn't it? He was also a prophet. Uh no. Um, well, the already not yet. I'll talk about it in the sermon on Matthew twenty-one. That the their New Testament authors. Now that we're in this age of salvation, they look back at the Old Testament prophecy, and the prophecy contained everything from the first advent to the second, all in one prophecy. And they're just pulling out the first. And that's why you call use the term, and Paul Paul John used the term mystery of God, this mystery. Because in the Old Testament, you have to just have the elements. You know, the coming of Christ now, and you know, revealing so much to us, the mystery has been revealed. It's not a mystery that's hidden anymore. We see Messianic salvation. So we can look at Acts chapter 2 and see Peter preaching that sermon and saying he's the form of uh, his spirit and all flesh and the Son of the Lord moving like in his life before the great and terrible day of the Lord. We can see throughout the rest of the Council of God. So just, we see those are the bookends of this, this time of mystery that the Lord has done about us. That will the last days, the day of today. Right. So, uh, they call it the mystery of God. That's why we see the two comments really couldn't be seen, except maybe in Psalm 110. You really couldn't see two comments in the Old Testament. Yeah, that, <clears throat> what we find out, and this is what where I have my debate with amillennialists, all right, is that if you looked at, if you put yourself back in the Old Testament, not having what knowledge that we have, and you take all those same prophecies, it says that Peter, they, they, they struggle to understand. Right? And so you can see that if in there there's a suffering Messiah whom God bruises for the sake of the sins of the people. And you can see the Davidic king who sits on the throne and vanquishes the enemies of Israel. And it's all through there. But how do you know there's two advents? How do you know that when it actually gets fulfilled... Part of it comes in one coming of Messiah, first advent, and the other part comes in the second. 
Well, they, yeah, there's a time in between. Well, it's all in the Old Testament, but they couldn't see it because it's all conflated into one thing. There, there's, what is this, um, there's a term for that in photography? Uh, what's that? Well, it's, is it parallax? Well, it, I saw a, a, a picture one time just to illustrate this for photography, and it was in a rural area, which I can relate to because I grew up on a farm, and if you, if you look through a certain lens and you see a row of telephone poles, like you see in the country, right? If you get up close, here's a pole, and here's a lot of feet, and there's another pole, and then there's many, many feet. You know, it's like so many hundred feet. There's another pole. But if you take a long telescopic lens... No. I hate it when I forget things. But anyhow, you take this long lens, and you look at that line of telephone poles that are right on top of each other. It's, yeah, that's the field. It has to do with depth of field. Yeah, it's a, Yep, you just whoop it, point it all together. So, in a sense, that's what the Old Testament prophets, they had the, the big magnifying glass, they had the long lens on their camera, all right? And, and all they see is telephone poles, whoop, one on top of another, and they don't have any way to distinguish how far they are between and what the differences are, because all they're seeing is this conflated view where it's all pulled together. Now, as we get closer and closer, all right, and it would be the same just with the human eye looking into the distance. If we get closer and closer, they get further apart. Until we get right under the telephone pole and go, wow, that actually is a long ways down there. All right? And so, and what you find out, and this is how I'll debate that guy on Jazz show that this says the church is Israel, uh, is that in every case, the reality of it was more complex than they originally thought. They originally looked at it, they just saw Messiah come. But then when, it, when we get closer, 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 and he does come, then we see he suffered and all these things. So now all these things make sense, but now we realize there's, there's more to it. Now, that, now we realize there's this whole church age, and then there's a the second advent. Now, what the amillennials say is that you guys come up with all this stuff. you got how many resurrections and how many judgments, and where do you get all this stuff? It's just one thing. Jesus comes back, there's judgment, that's all there is. It's real simple. Well... Wait a second. How? Let's just look at what's already happened and see how that was fulfilled. Was it fulfilled in really, really simple? That's all there is, or did, or did it become more complex as we get closer to it? So why would we assume that now is all going to change and won't be complex in the future? Yes. Didn't Jesus preached the kingdom, teaching right up until the time that Jesus fully rejected him, and he told the disciples to go out preaching to the world, and that was the well, the way I understand it is the kingdom preaching of Jesus is still valid. Okay? And that it turns out the way you enter the kingdom is through faith in Messiah. And that the literal establishment of the kingdom is yet future. That's how we understand it. Because Paul was preaching the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 28. Um, meaning that if you're going to enter the kingdom, you've got to do it through the king, Messiah, and then he's going to return and actually set up a literal kingdom. So my point is that I even I believe that as we are here today, we're in this today messianic kingdom. We've got a real clear view of the past. Amen. We've seen, we can look at all these Old Testament passages that were uh, 
fulfilled. You can see exactly how they were fulfilled. And we are getting closer to this future coming. And so it becomes more clear. For instance, 1948, Israel comes back to the land. See, we're supposed to learn when things happen. That's what I'll, I tell my eight millennials friends. You know, when something happens, take no. Israel came back to the land. That means something. We, well, it means, it means that uh, now we can look back at the Old Testament promises to Israel and see that God's still doing this. So we should learn. We should always be comparing things to the Scripture and learn as we go. Alright, so we're talking about this day of salvation. That Oh, wait a second. Somebody has verses here. Skip, you had one? You read yours. Carolyn, you had Psalm 95, 7 and 8. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Manasseh in the desert. Don't harden your heart. So, uh, Mark 12, 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thy enemies beneath thy feet. <laughs> he said it by the Holy Spirit. So, what does it mean, so that Psalm 110 you quoted there, what does it mean that the Lord is sitting at his right hand? Means he's reigning in heaven now, right? What about this putting the enemies at his as a foot for his feet? What does that mean? Right. When he returns, he's going to destroy his enemies. They hoped it was going to happen in the first half. And that's why they would have met him. Now I'm going to preach on that. By the way, that's going to be so. Uh, I'll give you a little foretaste. Foretaste is a good literary device. Your little foretaste is this: Messiah is coming in to Jerusalem. And in Matthew, it's very clear that he's coming in to bring judgment. They're looking for Messiah to come in to bring salvation, and he's coming in to bring judgment. Because the first thing he does when he gets there is go in and judges the temple. Uh, so, very interesting. The, the more I understand literature, the more the Bible makes sense to me. Yeah. And salvation right. The Israel. The salvation. Exactly. And, and that's, Matthew is so, uh, Matthew is just fantastic literature. All the Bible is. But the more you can understand how literature works, the more you can understand the Bible. The, the foreshadowing, the planting seeds in the reader's mind. We're reading through Matthew. We read in chapter 11. I thank thee, Lord, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent to reveal the debates. And then you get into chapter 21, and he goes into the temple and judges the leadership and the money changers, and the babes come in and praise him. <laughs> we were getting set up for that in Matthew 11 already. Wow, that's just good writing, isn't it? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired it. Kathy. Well, God, the temple was judged. Jesus predicted his destruction, which happened in 70 A.D., and it still sits today in ruin. Uh, there's different... The rebuilt temple is another topic we can't start because we're not talking about. 
for now, is still City of Ruins. I'll say that much. And uh, if you want to enter into the temple of God, believe in Jesus. <laughs> and enter, enter into His presence.